Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with two experts on national security issues in the Democratic and Republican Party conventions and platforms. My colleague, Tom Carrico, Director of the Missile Defense Project and a Senior Fellow in the International Security Program at CSIS, and Lauren DeYoung-Shulman, Adjunct Senior Fellow at the Center for a New American Security. So here we all are. We finally crossed the threshold from the primary election season to the general election season. We've had the conventions for the two major parties, the Republican and Democratic parties, and we've seen their platforms, or I should say their platform approaches. And so what we want to do in today's episode with our two experts is chat a little bit about what we should take away from those conventions and the platform approaches and see what we think the general election season means for defense and security. So let me start with you, Tom. Give us a little bit of your perspective on why we have these conventions and the degree to which we should be focused on what comes out of them with regard to our national security. Hmm. Well, thanks, Kath. I'm glad to be here. I guess overall, my expectations for conventions and certainly in terms of any particular policy, they're pretty pretty modest. You know, I'm reminded of uh, Bob Dole in 96 was asked about the platform. He said, I didn't read it and I don't plan to. But nonetheless, I think there's there's really kind of three things that conventions, political conventions do. I mean, in one sense, they're the formal nomination for the candidate, although really since 1952, it's been preordained in advance. In a second sense, it's, you know, the platform. Uh, the idea that admittedly mostly party functionaries come together, but at least have the patina of deliberating about the merits of some policy, of something that the, the party stands for. And then the third thing that conventions do is to convene, <laughs> to bring together the, the party faithful or or a coalition of folks. And, you know, yes, there's funny hats and pieces of flair, but there's also a social occasion and it's been interesting this this year, of course, we, we haven't had a lot of that. The Republican side didn't have a platform, but of course, the, the COVID situation meant that you didn't have that convening as well. And so, you know, it's not all bread and circuses, but there is a utility to bring people together and deliberating about the merits of public policy that I think is, is something we need to keep an eye on. You know, the absence of a, of a platform, the absence of a thinking through of what it is the Republican Party stands for this year, it kind of accelerates uh, an ongoing trend towards more plebiscitary approach and and less kind of deliberation. So I would I would raise a little concern about that. Well, let's come back to that. So, Lauren, the the Democrats had their convention first, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how you think national security came through, what the viewpoints of the party came through in that convention, and what were some of the highlights around that. Good question. My sense coming out of the convention was that national security was highlighted by the Democrats as a proxy for bipartisanship or a proxy for competence. And I read that in the speakers that they chose to speak about national security and also the night that they featured it on. 
which was night two in the convention, also highlighted that night were issues around health care. The, there was a lot of storytelling that night about Vice President Biden's personal background. And the, several of the speakers that were featured or that were, uh, that came up in this were former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Uh, Cindy McCain did a lovely tribute about how her former husband, John McCain's long friendship with Vice President Biden. These are all to me suggesting that bipartisan national security issues was how the Democrats wanted to frame their national security platform, or at least from the convention stage, in the sense that they weren't trying to say that like, we are going to have a radical, crazy platform and do new, innovative things in foreign policy, but more that we are bringing to the stage competence, steadiness, leadership, the ability to work across the aisle. They set up a really bold contrast with how they viewed President Trump, which was less from a policy perspective and much more from a personal perspective. All the criticism or most of the criticism of President Trump related to national security was far more about how he executed it himself, his own interests in it, his own ability to uh, develop policy and pursue it with sincerity. It was less about the actual successes and failures of it and much more on an, on an individualized basis. So I think that the Democrats were wanting to come off as the grown-ups in national security as opposed to how they have traditionally felt themselves, which might have been a little more of a, an underdog or a uh, the little brother in the national security world. So Tom, love to hear your thoughts on those themes coming out of the RNC. There was a lot of time and attention paid to national security in the Republican National Convention, but how did it contrast, or maybe there are some similarities, welcome those as well, with the presentation put forward in the Democratic Convention? You, you know, actually, I think I'll take that last point in terms of the similarities. I've been really struck by that. I've been noticing that Vice President Biden, for instance, has been talking about tariffs a lot lately and the uh, discussion of things like health care and education spending. You know, I'm really struck by the continuity, not just between Biden and Trump, but frankly, between Biden, Trump, Obama and even Bush in the 2000 campaign. I mean, you go back and look and everybody has kind of run, you know, year in and year out on some sort of nation building at home thing. The atmospherics and the style has varied a lot, but, you know, there's been this, this rather consistent, you know, we're not going to be doing that thing that the former administration did. And so the rhetoric, I've actually been struck by the similarity in the rhetoric between Biden and Trump. If you just took out the words America first and compared some of the things we're going to invest more at home. Yesterday, when the president was saying something about, you know, not investing so much in DOD, it kind of struck some similar notes. So I, I've been struck maybe they're trying to outdo each other there in terms of who's going to be doing more nation building at home. Well, let me actually pick up on two areas that I noticed that could be considered differences of degree, differences of tone, or maybe you all think they're genuine differences. But let me just pick up two of those. One is this idea of the forever wars or ending the conflicts in which we have forces deployed today. In the RNC, we had National Security Advisor to Vice President Keith Kellogg use this phrase, President Trump is no hawk, which is not something you would normally hear. I think, you know, it might be fair to say if you were looking back 20 years at a Republican National Convention, that may not be the frame that's put forward on the candidate. And you do have this theme running through parts of the Trump administration with regard to, you know, trying to come out of, for instance, Afghanistan. And that is a theme we hear quite a bit on the left as well. And Lauren, maybe we begin with you. Do you think there were genuine differences in approach being put forward with regard to this theme of perpetual conflict? 
I think actually what you're highlighting, Kath, is a genuine difference of opinion within the parties where they may find more alignments across the party, specifically on this issue of endless wars. We saw this quite a bit in the Democratic primaries as something that I focused on, where what does it actually mean to end an endless war? Do Do we literally mean we're pulling out all military forces that we're no longer pursuing combat operations? Or do we mean that we are drawing down to small groups, uh, special operations forces, intelligence assets? What is the actual definition of ending the endless wars? I think President Trump has, perhaps at odds with some of his appointments and actions, been pretty consistent in wanting to draw down to the Middle East and Afghanistan. He put this forward in 2016. He continues to come back to it in his policy today. His actual implementation of that has been inconsistent, though it's difficult to say that that's due to his own views or because he put in a cabinet that was never going to agree with that perspective. In the Democratic primary, you saw the between Warren and Sanders and the party, it was much more about, we we mean it when we say draw down and endless wars, versus what I think is probably the perspective of Vice President Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and others to say that we no longer want to be pursuing an expansive, never-ending conflict in the Middle East, but we recognize that there's risk associated there and want to have some kind of military presence that's a bit fuzzy in terms of what that definition is, but it always involves intelligence, special operations, counterterrorism, UAVs, and so forth. So if they had to actually sit down and talk about it, I think that certain wings of these parties might have more alignment than not. And we we see, I think we see a bit of this in the Democratic platform that we'll talk about later, that that, that fuzziness of between the, the two sides and that un- unwillingness to specify what is it we actually mean when we say ending endless wars. Yeah, I, I would just say, I think the, the, the point about the wings, I was thinking something similar that I guess I would put it that the debate within the Republican Party and the debate within the Democratic Party, say between the more progressive folks and the more national security folks, I would say that it's parallel. And take, for instance, Biden's response to the CFR questionnaire from some months ago on Afghanistan. Very careful, very hedging. He was asked, would he commit to withdrawing all troops from Afghanistan? And he said, I'll commit to bringing American combat troops home in my first term. Didn't say all, said some. And so, you know, frankly, I think that's a good, careful, cabined kind of an approach uh, in terms of we, we ought to do what makes the most sense in terms of policy rather than, you know, hard one way or hard the other. But, of course, you've seen the same similar kind of debate in terms of the Trump administration's, you know, we're pulling out of Syria. Well, we're not. We're going back. We're going to pull out again. Sort of back and forth indecision there. So I kind of see a similar debate in both parties, frankly. And the other area that really jumped out to me is the military families veterans piece. Of course, in the weeks since the conventions, we've uh, seen some reporting out of the Atlantic that's currently very much in the press regarding the president's views around veterans and those who serve. But in the conventions, if we kind of stick to that for the moment, what we heard coming from Karen Pence on the RNC side and also coming out in the Democratic convention was this emphasis on the importance of of the social compact with veterans and military families. Why is that a, such a centerpiece for both of the conventions? Is this just trying to get votes? Is it something more about how the veterans community fits within society? Uh, Tom, let's start with you. Why do you think that's such a trend in both conventions? Yeah, I think it kind of goes to that much commented upon phenomenon that the portion of Americans that are are in the military is a relatively small percentage. And so I think both parties want to show some connectivity, sympathy, uh, appreciation 
for that relatively small percentage. So, so I think, yeah, you can chalk some of it up to that political calculus, uh, but I think it also kind of connects in with that, you know, what are we doing in the world? How do, how do these particular military actions in the Middle East or elsewhere fit in with our long-term objectives? You know, just the phrase forever wars, I mean, already kind of biases one to a certain uh, disposition on them. But, you know, the very fact that multiple administrations have had a difficulty of withdrawing there may also reflect the the facts of how difficult it is rather than just uh, being obstreperous. You know, Kath and Tom, I think that both parties are, are no dummies on this issue. They're, they've been following the polls as well as anyone else over the last several decades, and they've seen that the military itself and military families and veterans are seen as one of the, if not the most trusted institution in American society. So even if they might protest, as I think that the, the Democrats do in their platform, that they don't want to use the military as a political prop, they are well aware of the potential benefit that they get out of showing that they are a party that supports the military or implies that the military supports it in some way. Whether they would go so far as to say that they want to make the, the military a voting block or make it appear to be a voting block that is supporting that party, I'm not sure that you'd get many national security experts associated with the parties to declare that. But if you asked a campaign manager, would you turn down the military as a bloating block? No, absolutely none of them would say, they wouldn't say yes. They, they want to be able to have that perception. It's useful to them. Just to kind of close out a point we were discussing earlier on national security at conventions overall, I think that national security is not a terribly important topic to conventions, but Military, military families and veterans is one of those issues you've got to get right there. You're, you're always going to find some sort of pomp and circumstance, thanking, supporting, highlighting, and I would say empowering military families and uh, military service members in these events. And it's probably never going to go away. It's going to continue to try to outdo one another in some form. What is going to be different is the degree to which we are politicizing, actively politicizing versus more sort of thinking and including in, in these events going forward. Yeah, actually, I, I to tell you, you said that, Lauren, it hadn't even occurred to me the most obvious takeaway from these two conventions, which is you did not have an either convention stage, virtual or real, the presentation of a retired senior military officer, which we had in, in both conventions last time. Do either of you think that was thought through by the parties and they chose not to do that, given controversy last time on the civil military implications? Or do you think it just was a coincidence that, that it didn't happen? I, for one, <laughs> doubt it's a coincidence. I, I, I credit them both, actually, for doing that. Both sides did it last time. It wasn't a good look. And, you know, I think it was I think it was Dempsey who really chided everybody in 2016 and says, this is not, you know, back to Lauren's point about the military as, in, as a respected institution, this is not going to help shore that up. It will undermine it. And it seems like folks have come around to that. You've seen more articles about that over the past couple of years. So I hope that was uh, for the right reasons. Yeah, I think that was probably deliberate. That being said, there was a lot of things on the margins that contradicted that impulse. We saw the, the week of the Democratic Party convention, I think it was somewhere over 70 former national security officials, many of whom were former general officers, come out and endorsing Vice President Biden, using similar actions on President Trump's side. We are always going to be pursuing some sort of endorsement or affiliation of former military service members uh, with these candidates. But to your point, Kath, the degree to which we are really, really, truly highlighting them at the convention in that way, I think that was a lesson that they took from 2016. It may have also been a lesson that they took away from, the, as you say, all the backlash that they got against it from the military itself. 
Yeah. And and to Tom's point, it sounds like it was a lesson the military, certainly retired military community took away from 2016. So let's turn to the platforms. So Lauren, you, you already foreshadowed for us some thoughts that you have on how the Democrats approach their platform with regard to national security issues. There's about a 20 page section inside the Democratic platform on national security. It's titled Renewing American Leadership. Tell us a little bit about how you see that platform as it relates to national security, really reflecting challenges and priorities in the party. Democratic Party platforms are always pretty policy heavy. They tend to have a lot of details. It tends to be a place for party experts to be able to show off where their knowledge and their expertise on party issues and national security is no exception to that. I actually was looking a couple of weeks ago to see who was talking about the platform on Twitter. And for the most part, all the folks who were referencing it in any way, who were linking to the document, they were all talking about the national security sections. Not necessarily because it was the most interesting or most detailed, but just because like we're national security people are nerds and they care about what's in there to some degree. The platform itself, I would say there's nothing in there that struck me as incredibly controversial, but the the way that it dealt with issues that could have been controversial was interesting, whether it be Israel or climate change or defense spending or ending endless wars, it was less that it staked out the position of the moderate side or the progressive side and more that it offered some wiggle room between the two to be able to say, yes, there are, we do believe that we could come down in defense spending, but we won't want to say quite how much. We do believe that endless wars can come to an end but we won't specify exactly on what timeline or with what kind of specificity. Israel was actually a really great example. There's a lot of new language in there that is more inclusive of representative Palestinians, while not using a word that folks who are more pro-Israel might have found controversial. They didn't say occupation. So in each of these, it was as though they, I think they did make an effort to say, we have a, a big tent party here, and there's a lot of opportunity for us to disagree, but we want to represent and kind of work around that disagreement rather than particularly lean towards one side or another in this party platform. So Tom, welcome your thoughts on the Democratic platform. But but I do want to turn attention to perhaps the most interesting piece of this whole story, which is that the GOP decided to forego a platform altogether. So welcome your thoughts on that decision and what they did instead in order to bring priorities forward on national security. Well, first of all, I, I would agree that, you know, a well-written platform isn't going to be changing of something dramatic, but that nonetheless, as I think Lauren was was pointing out, it nonetheless reflects the current conversation, the wings uh, within a party. And I think you see that, frankly, within the, the platform. You also see it in articles like Biden's foreign affairs article from some weeks or months ago. You know, it was carefully hedged on both sides, that sort of thing. That's to be expected. I will say the most important thing that jumped out to me about the Democratic platform was I counted 25 references to China, five to Russia, 25 to China. And you take a look at the ambitions, just the stated ambitions of that or other things. It's going to it's gonna be hard, I would say, to draw the defense budget down and do what the Democratic platform said it wants to do. So that's going to be interesting. But whether a Biden administration or the degree to which a Biden administration is tough on China in, in the ways that one might expect, that's going to be the single most important question, I think, going forward. Um, on the Republican side of the House, you know, I was, again, not surprised, but perhaps disappointed that there wasn't at least that going through the motions of trying to articulate what it is that the Republican Party stands for. The copying paste job from the 2016 thing over with, uh, I think, two pages of bullets. Yes, missile defense was one of those bullets, and I'll, have, <laughs> I'll weigh in on that in a minute, but it's not quite sure what that 
signifies other than kind of a bumper sticker. And so it's back to my early comment about conventions and at least going through the, the motions of not merely convening and talking and having a conversations about the things that Lauren said need to be talked through, but it really does punctuate and uh, I would say uh, accentuate the more it's all just a show, TV show, reality show, what have you, uh, about a particular uh, personality. In lieu of the platform, they, they released a set of priorities and on foreign policy, that list is stop endless wars, bring troops home, which we've talked about, get allies to pay their fair share, maintain and expand um, America's unrivaled military strength. You know, footnote, I think, from all of us here, maybe not so unrivaled, um, wipe out global terrorists who threatened to harm Americans and build a great cybersecurity defense system and missile defense system. Tom, do those strike you as the right priorities? And I'll go to, to Lauren. You know, look, uh, who doesn't want better relations with our allies? Who doesn't want allied partner capacity built? All that sort of thing. Again, I've, I've got pretty low expectations going in in terms of these things. They're, they're primarily a bumper sticker for different things. I have no idea what the missile defense thing has. You know, I'm looking at what the Trump administration has done over four years on missile defense, and it's pretty modest. So, you know, I don't know what that means exactly. But that's okay because it's just a bumper sticker. It's not a well-reasoned articulation of new concepts of operation. As Tom says, these are bumper stickers and ones that I think a lot of the Democratic Party would say, sure, these seem fine. I I have some issues with the, the rhetoric and framing. But also, I think they would take issue with the things that are missing. I mean, to Tom's point, like China t- is pretty heavily featured in the Democratic platform, that there's nothing in this about how the Republican Party views great power competition, how it thinks about using its military, how it's thinking about the growing impact of technology and our national security. I mean, I think the fact that climate change isn't mentioned is no surprise, but there's a lot of other functional issues that are, are not represented here. And while I don't think a lot of Americans are going to spend time reading these few platforms and making big choices about who they're going to vote for, I think they are really good exercises for the party itself, as well as the folks who are supporting them to understand what is the scope of the debate? What are the issues that we should care about? What are the ones where we should get better educated or understand that these are going to be a big focus going forward? Neither of them really commit Biden or Trump to saying, I'm definitely going to do this over the next four years if I'm elected, but they're a good starting point. So these these bumper stickers are maybe a bit of a disappointment to those who might w- might have wanted to learn more. Yeah, but actually, you're you're sort of convincing me, Lauren, as we wrap up here, that there is value in even the bumper sticker level conversation. So, is it fair to say, from your perspective, that these conventions and platforms are signposts that we should be paying attention to, that Americans might pay attention to as they go through this general election season? Knowing what most of us know about the folks who actually write these party platforms or who put together the the agenda for the conventions. If anything, they're representing the people that may end up in office someday, who may end up at the National Security Council, the Department of Defense, Department of State, or they'll be commenting about it from some perspective. Their views will continue to matter going forward, In even if we don't necessarily know who the author was. Understanding how those folks feel about these issues and how that they are trusted by the Biden or Trump campaigns in order to write them, in order to put together the agenda or otherwise, that's an interesting signal. Now, it's one that's a lot of criminology associated with it, but it's one where I think that 
Americans could get some useful perspective from both the conventions and the platforms themselves just to see where is this guy going to go in four years? What are his priorities going to be? Who are the sort of, sort of folks he's going to have working for him? If they screwed up, what kind of things are they screwing up so I could be cautious about that? Or if I see things where they got right, that I can be supportive in some way. So Tom, I'll give you that last word on the same question, which is, should we in fact care what was in the platforms such as they are and the and how the conventions portrayed foreign and defense policy. I think we should care not not because they're sui generis going to have an impact but rather they reflect the the debates that matter uh, within the party. And so they're uh, something you, you can go quote, you know, when you're in an administration as well, look, this is what we said we're going to do and it's not that you can't change, but there's a potential price of not hemming to the, what the, the platform says, especially early in the administration. So I think it matters a little bit, but not because it's the platform, but rather it's a, it represents something more substantive behind it. Well, I want to thank you both for digging in on this very wonky topic. And as we move through the rest of this general election season, we'll be reflecting back on this episode to see how much of the same rhetoric came forward or if the debates have shifted. So thank you to Lauren Schulman and to Tom Carrico. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.